Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, "We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain." Others were saying, "We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine." Still others were saying, "We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved." And but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, "You are exacting usury from your own countrymen." So I called together. A large meeting to deal with them, and said, "As far as possible, we have bought back our our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us." They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, "What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentiles' enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses." And also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests, and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe, and said, "In this way, may God shake out of His house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied." At this, the whole assembly said, "Amen," and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden. On the people 
and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also loaded it over to the people, over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this world. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember, remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Thank you, Sarah, for bringing us uh, this morning's reading. It's very honest, isn't it? Uh, Personal. You get the feeling um, it could have been written yesterday in many ways. Um, The kind of issues that are being dealt with in our passage today continue to affect all of us in our world and as Christians we need to think, how do we respond? How do we live in a world that is sometimes very corrupt and where the temptations to abuse power are many? Well, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Oh Lord, our God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken to us. Please speak to us now through this word, by your spirit, apply it to our lives. Help me, Father, to faithfully proclaim the message and the meaning and the application of this passage so that we might, as your people, be spurred on to love and good deeds with the integrity that you call us to have as your people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to suggest this morning that nothing brings the name of our God into greater contempt in the world than so-called Christians who profess to be followers of Jesus but then behave like the devil in their dealings with others. I think we've all seen it, we've all experienced it. Bad-mannered Christians, greedy Christians, loveless Christians, selfish Christians, unethical Christians, unchristian Christians. It is so discouraging when you see God's people behaving badly. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And the world, I have to say, is always very quick to point it out. Uh, Remember how our former Prime Minister, Scotty, Scott Morrison, got himself into a whole lot of trouble, didn't he, when he secretly took over the portfolios of half his cabinet ministers? It was highly unethical, it was very deceptive, and it was very disappointing because as our Prime Minister, who claims to be a Christian, it seems that his faith didn't inform his actions in any obvious way. Well, of course, I could give any number of examples of this sort of thing of believers behaving badly and shooting ourselves in the foot. 
Our passage today really is just another example to add to this list. It's another example of believers behaving badly. But I have to say that's not all this passage is about. And thank goodness for that. Otherwise, it would be a very pessimistic talk today. No, our passage is also about good shepherding, isn't it? There's a positive side to this negative story. It's about Nehemiah being a leader who leads with integrity despite God's people behaving badly. Here is a leader who cares for the sheep, upholds justice, defends the poor, and who fears God in all that he does. His powerful presence saves the day for God's people in our passage today. Nehemiah is a leader who hears the complaint of the poor and then administers justice in a way that is both firm and fair. This is a great model for us today. The result of this wise and godly leadership of Nehemiah is that God's people are kept united in love when they could so easily have become divided and fractured and fighting amongst themselves. He keeps them united in love by administering justice where justice was required and it is quite a remarkable achievement. So today's passage is as much about the shepherd as it is about the sheep. It's not only about believers behaving badly, which unfortunately we sometimes do, but it's also about leaders leading with integrity. And what a difference sometimes one person can make to the outcome of so much in the world and in society. That's something I've come to realise as I look at our world more and more these days. The, the, The intentions of one person can affect hundreds and thousands of lives. Now, we can bring that down in scale to just our own lives and influence, but it is very true that this is something which is important to consider, that one person's wise leadership, the integrity of one, can be a blessing to many. Today's passage is as much about the shepherd as it is about the sheep. When it comes to godly leadership, Nehemiah is one of the best. Remember, he was not a king, but he governed God's people wisely. He was not a prophet, but he faithfully applied God's word. He was just a layperson who loved the Lord and served him faithfully. And that's all God ever asks of a good leader. Well, we know the history. Let me give you a quick recap. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia in about the year 445 B.C., One day he heard news that the people of Jerusalem were in great trouble and distress. Remember the city wall was broken down, its gates and bars were burnt and lying in ruin, the people were living in fear and there was no one to help them. So Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, prayed to God and God gave him the dream, the vision of doing something about it. And so for four months he laid this matter before the Lord and prepared himself to ask the king for permission to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. It was a huge risk for Nehemiah to take, but in the providence of God, when he asked for the king's permission, the king gave it. So Nehemiah was on his way. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, there were straight away some very powerful people who were not happy to see Nehemiah there and taking an interest in the welfare of the Jewish people. 
One of them was Sanballat, the Horonite. And when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He took to bullying and ridiculing Nehemiah and the people in an attempt to intimidate them and to discourage them from starting the work. So again, Nehemiah prayed, and then he got on with the job. But when the ridicule turned into threats of violence, Nehemiah realised that a more comprehensive strategy was required. This time, not only did he pray for God's help, but he rallied the troops and he took direct action to minimise the danger. He also said to the people in an inspiring speech, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. The very things, note, that in our passage today are being stolen from them by their own people. Here you are saying, fight, fight for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And these other people are going, pocket, 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 pocket. So last week we saw God's people standing up, resisting the enemy. And in a very short time, the wall had been restored to half its height, praise the Lord. But then no sooner had this marvellous milestone been reached than this new danger arose from within. And this time it was more deadly than ever for the very reason that it was from within the church, from within the people of God who were thieving off themselves. God's own people were behaving badly and well may we say, with friends like these, who needs enemies? That's why today's crisis in Nehemiah chapter 5 is worse than all the rest, because this is personal. This is like having you going out and doing what you need to do, and you come back and you find that I've actually taken the keys of your car, and I've sold it off, and I've taken the money. You say, but I was out there doing this. The car was there. What was I? I thought I can take advantage of this. Praise the Lord. You say, well, that's not right. This crisis goes to the heart of the covenant, the love that we are supposed to have for God and the love we're supposed to have for one another. Can't you see how this kind of behaviour is going to rip the community apart? If God's own people are to blame, then what's the point in rebuilding the wall? What's the point of repairing the city if, in fact, the enemy lies within you know, to be like locking the doors of your car, click, 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 only to find that the hijacker's sitting next to you. Ah! That's what's going on in our passage today. It's a nightmare scenario. God will not bless his people when they're behaving like thieves. Unless Nehemiah can resolve the injustice happening within the church community, within Jerusalem, he might as well pack his bags and go back to Susa. Because Jerusalem will never stand while her people are divided against one another like this. Like I said, it goes to the very heart of God's covenant with his people. If you can't even love your neighbour so as to make sure they're not starving or not being sold into slavery, then what kind of a loveless community are you? God doesn't look kindly on people who abuse the poor. It's unacceptable. And this is a crisis that's so serious that it stops the work of rebuilding the wall. The attacks from outside didn't stop the work, but this attack from within stops the work of rebuilding. Tools down until Nehemiah 
can resolve it. It's a make-or-break situation. It's the greatest test of his leadership so far. So how did God's people get themselves into this mess? Well, let's find out, shall we? We've got three points today. First, from the complaints Nehemiah heard. Second, from the justice that Nehemiah administered. And third, from the example that Nehemiah set and expected others to follow. The complaints, the justice, and the example Nehemiah set. But I begin with the complaints Nehemiah heard, verses 1 to 5. Sarah read it to us. Let me read it to you again. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. And there's three points here. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. We're starving. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. We're becoming financially destitute. Still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. See, the king of Persia still wants his taxes to be paid. It was an economic and social crisis. People's budgets were being stretched to breaking point. That's the first thing to say here. Who's uh, got a tight budget at the moment? and finding it harder to live over the past 12 or 18 months. I bet just about everyone is. You notice the rising prices of food? You notice the rising costs on mortgages? You notice how the everything costs more these days. Uh, every dollar goes less. I think 50 is the new 20, isn't it? It's about how it works. Soon uh, we'll all own nothing and you'll be happy, they say. People's budgets were being stretched to breaking point. It's a very, very modern problem. Rising inflation, rising interest rates, corruption in high places. Every month, the people had to dig a little deeper into their own pockets just to put food on the table. And now they're being forced to sell their own children to pay the rent. It's hideous. I mean, just put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. Can you imagine how desperate you'd have to be to seriously consider selling your own children, your sons and your daughters, into slavery? Could you do it? Wouldn't it break your heart? Wouldn't you hate yourself for doing it? Well, I guess it's this or we starve. Goodbye, Ben. We've loved you so. We can't afford to keep you anymore. Bye, Emily. It's been great knowing you. I hope you'll survive. We can't afford to keep you. Today we complain about the greed of corporations and the complicity of politicians who line their pockets at our expense. And this is something like it, isn't it? Except it's happening within the church, within the Old Testament community of God. Within the community of God, people are ripping one another off to such an extent that families are having to sell their own children. What kind of church is that? Not a good one, is it? So the people raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Although, if you ask me, I think they're very restrained. Verse 5, they said, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, 
And though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. We are powerless to do anything about it. At this news, Nehemiah was filled with a righteous anger, and well should he be. He says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I bet he was. How can these fat cat leaders be so heartless? How can they have no fear of God? Do they take their duty of care toward their neighbours so lightly? Oh, we're all in this together, they say. But by their actions, they prove otherwise. Today we call it virtue signalling, but I just call it hypocrisy. God cares deeply about the needs of the poor and the disadvantaged. He cares especially about the needs of the faithful poor, the believing poor. Generosity, kindness and compassion are basic responses to the needs of the poor. Those who are well off need to be very, very careful in this regard. Not to be mean or penny-pinching or resentful toward the poor, especially in regard to the needs of brothers and sisters who belong to the household of God. Well, coming back now to the plight of these poor workers, the thing you've got to realise is they were working on the wall for free. Can you imagine it? They were financially poor, but they were rich toward God, like that poor widow who put two mites into the treasury in the temple. It was all she had to live on. One of those little coins would buy you a little bun of bread. She put her two little buns, that signified all she had to live on. She put it into the treasury in the temple. She gave more than anyone else who was there that day, said Jesus. Well, here we are again. These ordinary people in their poverty are very, very rich toward God. They gave all they had for the good of their children, the good of the city and the glory of God. So you have this extraordinary situation occurring where for 52 days the economy of the city came to a standstill. It was like living in Sydney during the COVID lockdown but without the government handouts. The farmers weren't farming, the weavers weren't weaving, the merchants weren't selling, the teachers weren't teaching because everybody who could do so had volunteered themselves to the rebuilding of the wall. Can I imagine if I said to you, brothers and sisters, uh, I I want you to take March and April off work. Will you do that for me? I want you to take no paid leave so we can all do a work of mission and outreach in the Burwood area. It'll be a big sacrifice, but it'll be worth it. From dusk till dawn, from dawn till dusk, we'll we'll visit every home, we'll pray for every uh, business, we'll we'll run programs and, and we'll share the gospel wherever we can. And by God's grace, we'll see God's kingdom grow. So off we go and we do it. We take off two months from work and we commit ourselves to doing it. We we take our leave, we pray for one another, we get prepared, and for the first month everything goes fine. But then then your your credit card maxes out, the electricity has to be paid, the cost of living is increasing, and the government still wants its taxes, and suddenly it doesn't work anymore. Why not? 
Well, it turns out the reason in terms of God's people here effectively is that the banks and the business leaders, the people who controlled the financial resources, hadn't backed off what they should be doing. So they didn't waive the mortgage repayments. They insisted on you paying your credit card. They wanted their money even though the workers were working for free. And that's where the system broke down. They should have been offering food to the workers, making sure that they had all that they needed of their supplies. They shouldn't have been charging the people interest, taking the mortgage payments, taking the land, taking the houses and getting on with their business while the work was being done. That was the problem. No wonder Nehemiah was angry. I guess the truth is he'd underestimated the selfishness of the human heart. So, second point, let's see how Nehemiah responds to this glaring injustice within the community of God's people. This is my second point for today. I've called it the justice Nehemiah administered. So, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Nehemiah's anger reminds me of the anger of the Lord Jesus again in the temple courts when he condemned the merchants and the traders for turning the temple into a den of thieves. It was wrong and it had to stop. So Nehemiah pondered the whole matter in his mind. He thought this through carefully and when he was ready he took his accusations to the nobles. He said to them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Now, what is usury? Well, usury is just an old-fashioned term for exorbitant interest rates. It's like banks today that charge 20% and more on your credit card just because they can. That's usury. It's exploitative and it particularly hurts the poor because they have the fewest options. The rich would never pay that much for credit. Who's going to pay 20%? Well, the poor do because it's the only access to funds they have. It only works when people have no choice but to accept the conditions forced upon them. Well, in Old Testament times, God's people weren't supposed to charge that kind of interest, in fact, charge interest at all on their countrymen's debts. This was forbidden by God in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. Do not charge your brother's interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Don't charge interest on a fellow countryman. They could charge interest to outsiders, to non-Jews, but they weren't supposed to charge interest upon their own community because they were family, because they were part of the covenant community of God's people and they weren't supposed to make money out of one another's misfortune. So these are the symptoms of sin that Nehemiah has to deal with. The law of God is being broken, the debts of the poor are being compounded by the charging of interest rates and the situation is getting so bad that some people now are having to sell their daughters and sons to stave off the creditors who are actually fellow Jews. Like I said, with friends like these, who needs enemies? But how to solve a problem like this? How do you force the rich and powerful to see the error of their ways and repent? How do you administer justice in a case like this? Well, I want to suggest, in a word, consistently. That is, by consistently administering justice with integrity. Integrity is a big word in our passage today. God's leaders 
need to apply God's word consistently in their own lives and in the life of the community. So Nehemiah, for example, was a good leader because that's what he did. He was consistent in his own life, first of all, and when it came to administering justice, no one could accuse him of double standards. Because he was consistent with God, God was also on his side, and one is a majority when God is on your side. Nehemiah was a principled leader, and people could see So this is what Nehemiah did. He dealt with the matter publicly. It's interesting. He dealt with the matter publicly. He brought the problem out into the open in such a way that everybody could see both the problem and the justice that was being done. So verse 7, do you notice? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Checkmate. These people hate being called to account, but never more so when it's public. Yet Nehemiah, because of his position as governor, has the authority to do so, to hold a public inquiry a royal commission, into this problem. So he did. And now the truth comes out about what these people had been up to. Nehemiah had set up a fund to buy back enslaved Jews with money that had been donated for that purpose. He was buying back the people, buying their freedom. Now I've got a little picture. I hope this works uh, here. A little. So what, what is it? Basically, his fund is now being milked by the same people who were supposed to be administering it. The nobles and the officials were supposed to be looking after this and setting the people free. That's what they were doing. But actually, what they were doing was enriching themselves off this fund and the troubles that they were setting up. So first, what they did is they charged interest on loans to the poor. And then, when the loans couldn't be repaid, they took the people's property. And when the property was all gone, then they took the people and they sold them on to Gentile slave traders. One more. You see the idea. This is Jewish people sort of uh, taking the people and selling them off. So they make money twice. They make money off the interest. They make money when they take the property. They make money when they sell them off to slaves. And then, having made money twice over, they applied to Nehemiah to pay the price to set them free again. And so the circle goes. Didn't I set you free last month? (laughs) How come you've been sold off again? They're going through, going through, going through. Nice little earner, isn't it? It's a classic example of corruption in high places, which exposed the wickedness and greed of, of human selfishness. The really amazing thing to my mind is the extraordinary gentleness of Nehemiah's response in verse 9. He could have gone in with a sword and lopped off a few heads. But no, verse 9, he says, what you are doing is not right, duh. He said, you sh- shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. 
Stop rotting this system. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also let the usury you are charging on them, the hundredth part of the money, grain and new wine and oil. Now, hundredth part, what does that mean? It means they were getting 1% a month. Yeah, They're charging 12% interest. Hundredth part a month. That's, they're charging 12%. Okay? That's what this is saying. And you can hear the crowds cheering in the background. And Nehemiah has turned this into a time for mercy. He could have really paid out on these nobles and officials, but he's seeking for repentance. He's seeking to restore through this justice that which has been wrongfully done. So, having been caught out, having had the case publicly presented, what can the nobles and officials do? except to admit their guilt in public. So that's what they do. We will give it back, they say, this is verse 12, and we will not demand any more, anything more from them. We will do as you say. We will do as you say. Nehemiah's leadership, in my view, never shines more brightly than when he's facing opposition and dealing with personal attacks. When he's dealing with these kinds of problems, he is an incredible problem solver. To this extent, he foreshadows the perfect integrity of Christ, achieving a reconciliation that few people could. Christ is the fulfilment of the example that Nehemiah sets in our passage today. And this continues to be an example for all Christians to follow. Nehemiah is truly a good shepherd leader. He's a good shepherd leader. He cares for the sheep. He upholds justice. He defends the poor. He fears God. He keeps the law of the Lord. He does all things well. And his powerful presence saves the day. He hears the complaints of the poor and then he administers justice in a way that is firm and fair. And for good measure, he holds the people to account by making them take a vow to keep the promises they've made. He holds them in a covenant. Verse 12, I like this. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Let's lock this in, shall we? I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. So there is grace, but there is a warning not to despise the grace. And the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord And look at this, the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah's skill as a leader is seen not only in how he puts a stop to injustice, but also in how he stops that injustice from happening again. It could have just been six months of layoff and then back to how it was, but he actually prevented the problem from happening Again, he did it by extracting a public confession, sealing it with a public promise, and then adding a public curse for good measure. Nehemiah made as sure as he could that promises made became promises kept. 
And that's a great outcome because the end result is that it kept God's people together. From here on in, the wall will be completed and the dignity of Jerusalem will be restored. Good things are going to happen. And so the people did as they had promised. Well, now let's have a look at the final part of our passage today in which Nehemiah sets an example to follow. During all his time as governor, 12 years in total, Nehemiah refused to take advantage of the perks of office that would normally have been his for the taking. He refused to enrich himself like previous governors did, and he regularly shared his food allowance with others so that none of it was wasted. In this way, Nehemiah proved again that he was a man of integrity. He was loved by the Lord, and he in turn loved the people. He stayed humble, and that is a fine example to set. Compare that to our leaders today. Compare that to our leaders today. Most leaders I'm aware of are greatly attracted to power, certainly in politics and in many other places as well. They're not really loving the people. They're not really serving the people. They're using the people. And you can tell when you're being used... I've even seen it in the church, and it's not good. I have seen ministers, for example, who refuse to stay in their church's manse, not because the property, the house where the minister lives, is substandard. No, not at all for that reason, but because they want the church to pay their mortgage. So they get the church to rent the manse out and then they take the rental income and claim it for themselves as a manse allowance. Nice work if you can get it. I don't know of any other business uh, that uh, also pays your mortgage for you. Where's the integrity? I've seen workers take sick leave who aren't even sick. Where's the integrity? I've seen entire families abuse their citizenship by grabbing every government handout they can while still preferring to live in Hong Kong or some other place rather than here in Australia. They give nothing to the nation. They take all they can. Is that right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. By contrast, Nehemiah was a man of integrity from start to finish. His focus was on pleasing God and his crowning honour was his integrity. Not like the other governors who were before him. He says in verse 15, the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Nehemiah clearly knew the temptations of power. He was the king's cupbearer. He'd seen all the luxury in the world. But he didn't take advantage of his position when he was governor. He didn't enrich himself or enlarge himself as he might easily have done and as others did. He could have lived like a king, but he refused to. Instead, he lived within his means. He kept his head down and he worked hard. That's why he's able to say at the end of his time of governor, down in verse 19, remember me with favour, O my God, for all I've done for these people. If nobody else remembers Nehemiah, then surely the Lord his God will. 
Nehemiah's integrity, as I said before, reminds me of Jesus. Like Nehemiah, as we look at Jesus, we see that his crowning honour is also his integrity, his love for God, his love for people, his, his honouring of the truth at every turn. And I think that's one of the lessons of our passage today, to maintain our integrity in the world to maintain our integrity as God's people in the world. We should love God and we should love one another. That's a great start. We should live within our means. We should be kind and generous and compassionate. We should keep our promises, like scruff from the kids' talk. Integrity is key. In conclusion, as God's people today, let us live our lives with integrity. Let us be wise stewards of all that God has given us. Let us be known as a people who are kind, honest, generous and compassionate, true to God's word, faithful in keeping our promises. Let us work hard at the ministry God has given us to the glory of God and for the good of his people. It's true that sometimes we are our own worst enemy. When we are, we need to be honest about that, confess our sins and perhaps apologise to one another. We all fall too easily into the temptations of power and self-interest that are around us all the time. But I believe one good leader who loves God and leads with integrity can accomplish great things. And this is the hope of all who serve with integrity, that one day we will hear our master and our king say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us today through Nehemiah of an even greater leader, Jesus Christ, a king who came into the world not to be served but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Help us renew our understanding today of that sacrificial love that Jesus had for us as his people, which is reflected in the sacrificial love that Nehemiah had in his day. And may we learn from both their examples to be men and women of integrity and generosity and kindness and courage that we might shine forth with the light of the hope of Christ in a dark and often loveless world. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.